0: Welcome to another edition of the Work Life Hub podcast. To find out more and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.eu.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be joining Caroline Fredrickson uh, via Skype, who's in Washington, D.C., Caroline is the president of the American Constitution Society, ACS, and is an eloquent spokesperson and advocate for the ACS and also progressive movements on issues such as civil and human rights. And um, she also served during the Clinton administration as a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. Um, We are here today talking to Caroline about her latest book, Under the Bus, How Working Women Are Being Run Over, and this is her debut work. Welcome, Caroline.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much, Agnes, for having me. It's a real pleasure and an honor to have the chance to talk to you about these issues.
1: As I already wrote to you uh, an email, maybe it's not going to be a secret to our listeners, but I'm a huge fan. And I'm very interested after having read the book, uh, what triggered or what was this moment for you when you decided to go back so far into the past and analyze really piece by piece the founding documents and the different legislations and historic decisions and even different uh, interventions in the Senate by different senators and to really uncover this underlying sexism and racism and discrimination in the current legislative framework that is preventing so many women in accessing and exercising their rights.
0: Well, Agnes, it's a great question, and you know, really, the the sort of precipitating element was that I, um, I I come from a background where I've always cared about workers' rights and women's rights, and I was a labor lawyer um, practicing on behalf of workers before I got into politics and ended up doing labor policy. Um, but when I, I, I was I was I, I'd say irritated by all of the attention that was going to the conversation that. Was taking place in the United States between what seemed to be the only two perspectives on what was going on with women in the workplace, which was either the Sheryl Sandberg Lean In, women need to sort of change themselves, you need to be more assertive, um, or the the Ann Marie Slaughter, women can't do it all, it's just impossible, we're genetically incapable, or whatever. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but essentially that women can, you know want to opt out, that the, you know there's this nurturing role that we want to fulfill and. And it's really, you can't really have, have all of that um, and be a good mother. And, and, uh, and so I, I was just kind of profoundly irritated by that because, I, I, I mean, I think there may be some level of conversation that goes on with, you know, very elite white women mm-hmm. in the United States who have the conversation about how they struggle with, you know, their struggles, which are, you know, whether they have three nannies or whether they um, stay at home. Um, uh, where that which they can fully afford to do. And I, I just thought the the question just overlooked, which is the major issue for most women, which is they have to work. They may want to work also, but they have to work. And if they have to work, we have a dilemma in our society about how to allow them to work in a way that allows them to take care of their family, um, that ensures that they have some level of fulfillment, that they're not being treated like um, slave labor. Um, and and so I started thinking about you know writing a response to both of those points of view the opt in the opt out or lean in um, sort of points of view but the interesting thing was even with my background and I've worked in politics as you mentioned I was in the Clinton White House um, I was I I worked uh, for Senator Tom Daschle who was the Democratic leader in the Senate and I worked on labor issues um, for him and even drafted legislation that uh... uh... would have uh... added to women's workplace rights but all the same i never really thought about why it was we had these different carve-outs in the law and as i started thinking about what what i would write to um... to, to sort of put on the table that anne marie Slaughter and and Cheryl sandberg were actually not addressing most women i thought i would look at all of the issues that were in fact in front of women which were employment discrimination sexual harassment, um, the lack of child care, uh, no paid family leave. Uh, And and I was struck by, the more I got into it and the more I started looking at the legislation, that there were so many women who weren't even protected by those laws. Mm. And the history is quite blatant and clear about why that was. And, you know, really, you know, we started on this trajectory under President Roosevelt. And he was obviously a wonderful president. And there was a lot that was accomplished at that time in sort of remedying some of the uh, perversions in the labor market, the idea that um, that uh, workers had um, uh, no rights to organize that there was no minimum wage um, and uh, and ultimately through the Civil rights era when there were protections against discrimination but the the discussion is clear at the time uh, during the New Deal that President Roosevelt made compromises along the way in order to accommodate um, most southern southerners who wanted to maintain the historical kind of plantation economy of the South, and that meant making sure that there was no union and no minimum wage for the people who worked on their plantations. A lot of those were women of color, African-American women primarily, who worked as nannies and housekeepers and cooks, um, and many of the field workers were women, Uh, and and as a result, these kinds of leftover carve-outs, and there are a number of other ones, uh, mean that those women and these are predominantly women-filled jobs, are cut out of the, all of the protections that we have in our laws. Um, and that went through the civil rights movement, where it focused more on the size of the employer. Um, but essentially what the dialogue was in the history, um, if you look at the legislative history, um, members of Congress basically said, look, it's one thing to require General Motors, or you know, one of the major uh, employers of the time, massive tip for people to actually have to work with black people. But it's another thing um, to ask somebody who runs, you know, a little, a little grocery store or, um, a, a real estate agency or something like that to actually have to work with somebody like that. I mean, it was very clear that they sort of drew a distinction between the kind of relationships that happen in small businesses and those that happen in large enterprises. As a result, uh, there is a large group of people, and they're primarily women, working in those kinds of environments who have no protections at all. They're not protected against discrimination. They can be sexually harassed, and they have no recourse under the law. Uh, they can't organize unions, and they can't—they—they uh, they don't get paid a min- minimum wage. And so we, you know, well, once you add up all of these different categories, and plus the fact that employers have moved in recent years—and I think this is true um, in many different countries—but to sort of get rid of their employees altogether um, and have transformed their workplace by naming everybody as independent contractors or temporary employees. Um, And as a result, those employees don't have any protections at all. And again, the the people who are most subject to those kinds of changes that are going to mean that they have fewer and fewer protections tend to be women, tend to be low-wage women, and tend to be primarily minority women. Um, And so we get to a point where you know, as so we see the in, in increasing inequality um, in the world, in the United States especially, we see that those concentrated um, at the bottom um, are women of color, um, and they fulfill these roles that we all consider really important, um, but, in fact, we don't treat as very important because they're not provided any protections.
1: I mean, this is this really takes me to uh, the next question that I wanted to ask you. The book is, is really filled with testimonies and case studies and, and and stories of of these women and they will make everybody feel very uncomfortable at the least. And it, it really made me question this great paradox. I mean there are a number of paradoxes that you really shine a light upon, but one of them is we leave our children the, really the things that are most precious to us are children, our elderly or frail relatives or our homes. To uh, these carers, these caring uh, care workers, mostly women, mostly also women of color or, or migrants, and then we treat them like as if it was a modern-day slavery. So how is it that we we cannot transfer this this sense sense of value that we feel is their object of their work to the workers themselves, and we leave them in these in these deplorable conditions?
0: Well, you know, it's a very, very good question. And I think um, in some ways it goes to the fact that, wi- that caregiving as a woman's activity has been so devalued for so long. Uh, and, 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 you know, this, again, one of the reasons why it was so easy to exclude caregivers from the protections of the law was that it was both seen as sort of natural to women and so therefore not as, almost not as work but as sort of a function of what women do naturally, Um, but also was somewhat, um, was rather um, looked down on um, as a type of work. Um, And so those two things operate together, I think, to have created even, you know, in women who think of themselves um, very much as feminists, um, as, you know, believing in workplace rights and so forth, to somehow create a different sphere in their minds for how they perceive the work relationship um, with somebody who works for them taking care of their children, um, versus the way that they think of work relationships in and outside, in a sort of a, in a in a different kind of, an, of of institution. And I think this has allowed us in the United States to have uh, a system where it's both highly unregulated, um, you know, which is you know a terrible thing for children because so many children are in. Uh, situations where they are not in safe uh, hands; that they are they are being placed in facilities that are not um, properly uh, equipped for children; that have people who don't know how to deal with children, or not they're not uh, trained to be uh, teachers or caregivers. Um, and, and you know, we don't have any protections for the workers um, who are underpaid, overworked, um, and you know. And I think the you know the, the what we really need to do is figure out how to add value to the actual giving of care and it's the only we need to professionalize the industry we need to think of the people who do these jobs as professionals uh, we need to give them the support that they deserve they need to have the training uh, in order to ensure that the children who are left in their care are treated appropriately and similarly with those uh, caregivers who care for the elderly um, you know in the United States and I think this is again very true um, in other parts of the world in Europe particularly much of the caregiving work is done by migrant women mm-hmm. um, who oftentimes don't have a legal status, are easily, easily abused. Um, there are many stories of, of women, um, particularly in the diplomatic community, where um, they are treated really as slaves. Their passports are taken away from them. They have no legal status apart from the employer, um, and so really can't object to uh, any types of, of of, of Abuses that they that they undergo, and and even in cases where they're not quite subject to slave treatment, they have no rights to overtime pay, um, to um, the basic dignities of uh, uh, of a worker. And you know, sort of what what had really jumped out at me, and this was in partly in reading um, Lean In, mm. was um, you know her talking about um, the the stresses that she had of trying to get home for dinner, to have dinner with her children. And, you know, of course, she went back to, you know, she worked at home on the computer after um, after dinner. But, you know, the, the, but the ability for her to, to sort of leave her children with, you know, some probably quite um, um, senior caregiver, somebody with some, some experience um, in a safe environment. Um, so she never had the same kind of existential worries that um, so many other women do. It's just you sort of... You either lo- leave your children alone, or you leave them in a place that you can afford. Um, and for many women, that's that's not a place that is very safe or or uh, conducive to a child um, being treated, um, you know, well by a caregiver. It's not conducive to the caregivers being treated professionally. So I think a lot of it has to come back to. The kinds of values we assign to the role of caregivers and especially understanding that it's it's an absolutely important function. It needs to be treated like any other kind of of profession, firefighters, Mm -hmm. police officers, teachers, uh, lawyers, doctors, and caregivers. And it should be seen as the same kind of profession that deserves the same kind of of valuation I mean, until then, until we sort of reappraise, we're going to end up with these situations where you have, um, you know, very, um, very unsafe conditions for the children and very abusive conditions for the workers. And for both groups, it's a very, very bad situation. And I think um, it's one that, you know, we, we, we really need to, to reckon with, because if we don't, you know, the, 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 obviously the workers are, are suffering, but the children, the impact on the children has very long-term consequences for our society.
1: Yeah, and it's almost as if it's for the few who afford this kind of help. It's just a question of convenience. And I was so struck by one of the stories of one of the women where she explains that she all of a sudden had to also work on the weekend, which for her uh, meant an, an additional $75 of childcare that she had to pay for her children to be taken care of, just because the supermarket is then open 24/7, or or someone uh, wanted uh, her to be at the workplace uh, for longer, and it's it's this invisible workforce, right? It's for us. It's so convenient that I can just go and I'm spending maybe two minutes at the at the checkout, and I'm not really thinking of how many bathroom breaks uh, this lady uh, had at at the Walmart checkout, for example, or or I don't think about. Um, uh any any other uh such thing because for me it's just a question of convenience
0: well exactly and i think i think that you know as you said there are there are different workers in different situations that we interact with every day and i i've had this situation now repeatedly as i've kind of focused on these workers who are left out that um you know having conversations with um you know, someone who cuts my hair, or you know, if I get my nails done, or yeah. you know, the few the, every once in a while when I'm in a in a TV studio and I talk to the makeup artist, and you know, none of none of them are actually employees; they're all independent contractors, and they are really on the edge because they don't they don't have any particular um, protections in the workplace. They're you know subject to being fired without any reason, with you know, they're not entitled to any of the overtime protections they don't get um, uh, they don't they don't get minimum wage and so you know for them the child care issue then becomes even more critical and for low-wage workers generally you know they're they're balancing you know very much the cost of being in the workplace in terms of the child care cost they have versus staying at home and losing that income and you know it comes down to this sometimes existential choice it's sort of you know, the woman you're referring to, she ended up um, uh, having to go on welfare. I mean, she, she just couldn't, she could not afford to work, which is a crazy situation where you can't afford to work because the child care is so expensive. And so she went on welfare. Um, and, you know, somebody who actually was trying to better herself, was trying to um, make a life for her children as a single mother and, and and not able to do that. And, you know, sort of being in the worst situation where she thought she was just – uh, failing her children because she was she was going back into welfare when she had tried to make it um, uh... in the workforce and just couldn't couldn't do with that you have other cases where where the the there's you know not an option of getting or it's not enough um, to get um, help from the government and people stay in the workforce and then their children you know as as are the uh... are the U, the u.s. government when they um keep track of what kind of child care arrangements families have. Call There's a certain category called self-care, which I just thought was, was the most bizarre euphemism for leaving a kid alone. You know, we used to call them latchkey kids. Yes, or, yes. Um, and, you know, so there are a certain number of people who just have to sort of figure out, sometimes there's not a relative, there's not a grandmother, a grandfather, there's not a cousin, um, there's not a neighbor. Um, and they just sort of Lock the door, leave their child, um, and go off to work. And it's sort of, and and you know, one can't really blame them in some ways because they don't have any other options. And um, and I think you know the struggles that that, uh, that um, women in this sort of in these in these situations have is not only the economic one where they're trying desperately to pay their rent, buy groceries, um, and so forth, but the emotional toll of not of feeling like they're not they're not taking care of their children. Um, the guilt, the anxiety, um, the stress, I think, on low-wage workers is another element that is not given much attention. We think of the stress of an executive, you know, yes. you know, somebody who's worried about how the company is going to perform. But thinking that you're not going to be able to provide a meal for your children, um, you know, that's much more stressful at a much deeper level. And I think we, we spend very little time thinking about not only – the situation that so many workers are in, in terms of uh, the limited protections that they have and the and the the, the the lack of access to basic resources, but we 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 really think almost never about what emotional toll that takes on families and and you know and then the, the consequent cost for our society to have um, to have people undergoing those kinds of stresses and 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 not have uh, an ability to deal with them either through um, through, you know, being able to resolve, which is, I think, the most important thing, would resolve it by actually knowing that they can take care of their children, that they'll have access to decent child care, that they can earn a decent living, that they'll have um, uh, some ability to maybe even retire someday, on, you know, and have some kind of retirement. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, it's just I wanted to put these issues on the table because I think they're they're not going to be resolved immediately. I mean, we have a lot of challenges, um you know, in sort of addressing the multiple ways in which women are are um, uh, devalued in our society and the difficulties they have in um, in achieving real equality in the workplace. But we need to talk about these issues, because if we don't, and we just talk about lean in, um, you know, I, you know, we're not going to ha- have made much change in the world, because I think I, I, I was really struck by, um, there's a wonderfully brave woman named Betty Dukes who worked at Walmart, and she uh, wanted to get a promotion and a raise, and she'd worked. Yeah, she'd, after 20 years, after right? 20, Even yeah, after 20, she'd been working hard. She'd been performing well. Um, but the white guys seemingly always got the promotions, and she was left behind, so she went to complain to her supervisor. Instead, she was demoted, and she got a pay cut. And so, you know, what I'd like to say to Cheryl Sandberg is, look what happens for some women when they lean in. They get fired. And so leaning in may work, and I'm not – I don't disagree with the basic premise. I think there are issues around how women can learn to be more outspoken. I'm all for that, but I think that that's no replacement for the real hard work we need to do of, of making very significant legislative and policy changes to ensure that there really is an ability for women to um, be in the workforce, um, have families, um, and, you know, and, and live a life that's not um, – you
1: know, not in poverty. I so agree with you. And, and I always, I mean, Cheryl Sandberg and this whole lean in movement just really bugged me uh, on the one hand because it was so elitist and so C-suite. And, but then I, I I thought it was so ridiculous that when I guess they started receiving some backlash for this mm-hmm. encouraging women. And then the response was this, because they just get all the media attention. That, you know, that's that's the thing. They just get all the media drawn to them. And so the response was this uh, ban bossy campaign. Uh, I know. You know, it's ridiculous. You know, so so lean in, go for it. And then, oh, but women seem aggressive. No, no, no. And it was just another, uh, I mean, at one point in the book, you also referred to a band-aid, uh, you know, on the wooden leg or the, fest- the band-aid on the festering wounds. And this is just not going to advance I don't think any women's cause um, without, you know, giving the real structural and legislative and policy support and affordable childcare, There's a wonderful quote in the book, uh, in chapter five, which is one of the easiest ways to fall from the middle class into poverty or from poverty into destitution is to have children. And I think, in, I mean, you, you, you're very actively involved and have been in, in politics and policymaking. And I think one of the most overused sentence of any c- political campaign is children are our future. And we have devastating demographic um, situation. And yet we don't seem to invest neither in motherhood or to create the conditions for women to have children and continue working to make a living neither in uh, early childhood care and affordable care, good quality care services. So pregnancy and childbearing is really penalizing women.
0: Well, it's very true. And I think, um, you know, we, we, we have a, a big choice to make as a society. We're either going to benefit from the abilities that women bring to um, our society, their, their various talents, um, or we're not. And if we think that's a value, and I think we see now in a variety of societies, Japan, for example, where women are uh, a very a, a smaller percentage of the workforce. And recognizing that their 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 economy is is, is sluggish and and slowing down, um, in part because of that, um, we recognize that women add a great deal of value um, to um, the vibrancy of the economy. And you know, and of course, and for women themselves, those who do want to work. Um, you know, should have the opportunity to have some level of fulfillment and, and be actors themselves in, in the economy. Um, and if we, if we agree that both for the economy and for women this is a value, then, then we have to recognize that women are women. And if they are going to have children and if, if, if we are going to um, value the bringing of children into the world, we actually have to make it so that it doesn't penalize women at the very least. And, uh, you know, and I think there's, you know, a sort of similar movement um, to try and ensure that men are seen as, you know, as parents as well, that they are equally yes. responsible for um, the education of children. And I think those sort of, those, both of those elements, and, you know, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about before, but in the terms of the valuing of caregiving, the higher value we give to it, the more likely men are going to find it um Something that they want to participate in, something that should be paid adequately, something yes. that should be respected, and so you know I think there's there's a sort of a, a number of elements in this, but you know I, I think it, the irony um, we've just had this case in the United States dealing with our pregnancy discrimination act, um, in in which a woman who worked for UPS um, uh, was pregnant was asked asked to be put on light duty because her doctor said that she shouldn't be lifting heavy. Um, heavy boxes. Um, UPS made an accommodation um, for all sorts of workers um, to have light duty when when necessary if they pulled their you know pulled a back muscle on the job or somehow hurt themselves but they said well no pregnancy is different because we we, we are pregnancy neutral policy that is pregnancy is not treated like any other disability. Other disabilities will give light duty to but if you're (laughs) pregnant that's something totally different and so they basically put her on leave and, and she lost her pay and her health care, and she was pregnant. She needed health care. And, um, you know, and so, so the irony is that, that, the, that the courts found initially that the Pregnancy Discrimination Act didn't protect her because, you know, the company said, oh, we're not discriminating against her but, but because she's pregnant, but we only allow this policy to people with other kinds of disabilities. And so, you know, we have a situation where, we have this huge blind spot that, you know, we need to make sure that pregnancy and work are compatible, that child care and work are compatible, that, you know, dealing with family illnesses and work is compatible, um, because we're no longer in a place, nor should we be, where everybody has a wife. Every worker has a wife. The wife is at home taking care of the kids, and the male worker has both the income and the interest in being the sole breadwinner. Um, and that that's viable, then it's not economically true, and it's not, and it's morally wrong to to think that women should be shut out of the workplace like that. So once you know, again, once we we've kind of reached this point where, you know, it's uh, 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 indisputable that you know women have a role in our economy, and that women should be protected at the you know with their ability to work, but if we don't go further and think about how that that ability to work combines with the ability to have a family. You know, we're just going to be failing um, families, women, children, husbands, men, uh, et cetera. Um, and so, I think you know, it just you know, it's, it's just what you had said earlier about the siloing of so many issues. That you know, we tend to look at child care as kind of a discrete issue. Look at the quality of child care. Look at how much money we're spending on it, and so forth. And we look at you know employment discrimination over here, and we look at um, the ability to join a union over there. And in fact, you know, th- these. The way they interact for women is, is one is in one kind of composite, um, and it means that they are hugely disadvantaged in their ability to um, to have, uh, you know, to, to participate in the economy in a way that um, works for them. And making just as it works, the way you set up, it's, it's, it's
1: always serves very short-term interest, either just your term. That will lead to some trade-offs and then it's these most vulnerable uh, less represented groups that will be shut out from from the deals and so there's not a long-term thinking of 10 or 15 or 20 years when actually a lot of this investment would bring the return because investing in early childhood care or investing in in uh, a proper pregnancy and, and and child protection for women or um, even the the working conditions improving the working conditions of these care workers would really prepare fruit in in five to ten or twenty years and and it's now 2015 and i just wonder how long can we still wait around before before we someone has this real courageous this political decision to to, in, to you know just go for it and invest
0: well, you know, I, I think we can't wait very long. And, uh, you know, actually, I, th- I think we're, you know, starting to see more of the conversation, uh, the conversation around the, the 1% and the 99%. Um, yeah. You know, when we look at, uh, you know, I'd like to sort of unpack that a little bit because I think, you know, we can't lump everybody in together because the, the 99% includes a lot of people <laughs> who don't necessarily have entirely similar issues. But if we start looking at women who make up, you know, large Percentage. Actually, women are, you know, 51% of the population um, and are, you know, very much aggregated um, in these uh, low-wage jobs. You know, we, we need to start sort of moving the conversation away from just, you know, saying here's a problem, but actually now what do we do about it? Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there are different models. I think um, different countries have, have different strengths. You know, the Scandinavian countries... Um, have some particularly interesting um, policies where they've promoted um, caregiving among men. Um, and one of my favorite um, uh, efforts to get men to take family leave to spend time with a newborn child was in Finland where they actually ran ads and they had enormous billboards that said uh, basically, Dear Men, on your deathbed, do you wanna, will you say that you wish you'd spent more time with your boss?
1: <laughs> and I just thought it was so funny
0: because it's really you know that's it right? I mean it should be for people, um, you know, to think I, if I'm having children, I should really want to spend a little time with them. And then the irony of people who just work all the time, men particularly who've worked all the time and seen that as the sole value, and not the value of of spending time with um, with their children. Um, and so, you know, but there have been other strategies. I mean, sometimes you just have to use, you know, the power of the purse. And so leveraging men's participation by, you know, a- a- allowing for a certain amount of, of family support during um, uh, uh, an early childhood, um, it, which would not go, the woman wouldn't get the entire thing. Some of the time would have to be used by her by her partner. Um, and, you if that's, once that starts happening, people start doing an economic calculus, right? And so we have to start thinking uh, somewhat um, in, in that frame that there are ways of leveraging it, um, uh, and, and getting men to participate in, in, in childcare and caregiving. Then one of those ways is by how you structure your policies to basically push them to do it, um, and it becomes a norm. Um, and you know you do see this now in in Scandinavia, I and mean, you know other countries have other you know childcare uh, programs that are much more robust than what we have in the United States. We don't actually have a childcare program in the United States yeah. a- at all. Um, not a universal one. Yeah, you have the lit-
1: some of the targeted ones, the, you know the the pre-K and the Head Start and
0: right, and they're very underfunded, the and yeah. they're not yeah. in any way available to um, to all the families that are eligible, there's a very small percentage of people who actually can get into them. So, I mean, I think we have, I'd say, you know, I'm, I would actually be optimistic in the sense that there are a lot of proven policies in different countries that um, have been relatively effective, um, and that certainly in the United States we have a long ways to go. Um, in, 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 in other countries around the world, you know, there are certain areas where they're stronger and weaker, and I think the idea is to kind of learn from um, you know, what's been successful and what has made change uh, for women, you know, what are the most, um, you know, sort of the most significant um, and important uh, elements of that? And I do, I, you know, I tend to, to go back to the caregiving issue because I think that, you know, is one where, uh, you know, again, I, I, I think we need to value it. And so the French yeah. system where, you know, they have, um, you know, immediately on, upon birth, there is both an ability for parents to stay home and get some kind of support from the government, or to have to have uh, 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 put their child in some kind of a, a, of a nurturing environment with a caregiver and go back to work. And they, the, the, but the caregivers are highly trained, they're well paid, then they have a status that is like a teacher, as opposed to a nanny in, in, in our country. And I think that, yes. you know, sort of, again, it, 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 it for me, you know, to, to sort of to, to look at how how people um, take in those values and, bec- and make it part of their own understanding and their sort of their, their own value system. And I think once, you know, you have uh, systems where caregiving is valued um, mm. in some way because either there's a systemic approach like in France or there's this sort of economic leveraging of to get men to caregive in Scandinavian countries, you start changing people's uh, sort of conscious consciousness about the role of caregiving and the value it should be assigned in our society.
1: I think we could go on forever talking about this, um, but I think we we have to come now to our, our last question. And usually on, on our podcast series, we ask um, our guests to uh, the same question always, which is if you could give an advice to a CEO to make an improvement in the well-being of their employees, what would that be? But I think it's much more fitting if I would ask you, if, uh, if you could uh, give an advice to Sheryl Sandberg and Anne-Marie Slaughter, what would you tell them they should do and how they could use their celebrity and, and status and media attention to make a change?
0: it's <laughs> a great question. Um, I, I think it's, it's back to this role of caregiving. I think they need to um, do a lot more than help their employees freeze their eggs. And I don't know if you've followed that, yes. but um, that is something that um, happened at Facebook, um, have Facebook, which ironically has no child care facility um, at its headquarters. You know, I'd say they should be out persuading policymakers to ensure that there's child care. Let's start with that. Paid family leave and, and decent child care are probably the two most important things. Of course, I think they need to make sure that promoting women and their, um, you know, that they're dismantling the segregation of, uh, of different types of jobs um, and work looking for women and, you know, to 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 do the, some of the tech jobs and so forth. But I think really, you know, they they employ people in a whole variety of different capacities and uh, I've seen some of the um, changes because of the pressure of the uh, the wonderful activities of the um, fight for fifteen of the minimum wage workers who are fighting to get a, a minimum wage yes. a lot of the workers who work at Google and Facebook and some of the others are independent contractors and we're even making we're making minimum wage um, and even though you know their their higher level staff make millions and millions and millions of dollars and so there's been a push to make them employees and to give them a much better salary, Um, but I think then looking at their role in in sort of the public discussion, they need to start identifying what's actually really going to help women. Again, lean in is of minimal importance for most women. What would be important would be they can have a child or take care of an elderly um, relative who's sick and take paid leave um, and that they can, uh, when they want to go back to work, they can leave their child in an affordable, uh, very decent uh, childcare facility with people uh, who are professional caregivers who can actually ensure that the child is well taken care of and maybe even learn something. <laughs> that, for me, I think is um, probably the most significant um, uh, uh, policy change that they should be pushing for.
1: Well, thank you very much. I. I really enjoyed your book, which I can highly recommend. And I really much uh, appreciated our talk and that you took the time. We at the Work Life Hub, we we always make sure that we, we repeat that we believe that work life support and services should be for everyone. Because it's only then that we can make progress together as countries or nations, or um, so. Thank you very much, Caroline. It's 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 very much appreciated that you took the time to come and, and talk to talk to us about your book.
0: Well, it was a real pleasure, Agnes, and and I appreciate all that you do, and um, wish you great success. And will be eagerly following your work. Um, and so, um, thank you again, uh, and um, you know, hopefully. When we when we next talk, um, we'll have something to talk about. that's an improvement or a change for the better,
1: or we can discuss what Cheryl Sandberg and Amory Slaughter replied to your advice.
0: guess <laughs> that would. I'm waiting. I would bated breath for that.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: All right. Take care.